You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa. Hi, and welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Defty, with my co-host, Naomi Land from Australia. Hey, Naomi, how you doing? Can you pronounce that a little bit better, Pete? Okay. The lovely, the lovely... Naomi Land, or do I say the lovely Miss Naomi Land? Yeah. Okay. How many times? I'm great. Do I... How are you? Ah, uh, I'm um, I'm wonderful because today we have one of my heroes, um, on here, and and it, one of my heroes again happens to be another woman because, as I say, in today's world, women are better equipped than us Neanderthals. Um, Judy Baker and Judy's got a wonderful story um, she's going to tell us and, and of course you know you have her books which I sent you yes and, I do but Judy has a wonderful story about um, what drove her to um, creating this wonderful com- compendium of, of great recipes and as I say uh, when people pull out the excuse that uh, they have to give up their comfort foods, I just pull up Judy Baker and her books because when you have her books and her recipes, you, there's a there's a substitute uh, comfort food, low-carb comfort food equivalent that's either as good if not better. So, Judy, welcome to the show. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah, just make sure you're talking into your mic and getting the track. <laughs> okay. So, so Judy, um, can you tell us a story about how you came low carb? Well, the story started in the year 2000, so it's been 17 years, and I I started it originally. You know, I had I was one of these people who never gained weight. You know, I could eat a whole pie and it would have no effect, uh, and. Uh, but as I got older, you know, it started to kind of creep up on me, and and I, you know, all my friends were always dieting, and they never lost any weight, or if they did, they gained it right back. But I, I really was more concerned about my husband because he kept getting, uh, you know, they kept putting him on more medications, and he kept getting worse, and his legs were starting to swell, and and he was, uh, he actually took early retirement because he said he didn't think he was going to live to be 62, to retire. So um, after he retired, we went on a cruise with a group of friends that he had worked with. And on the cruise, the person sitting next to me at the table, you know how you tend to sit with the same people on a cruise, they assign you to a table, or they did then, I don't know if they still do. And the lady that I was sitting next to, and I was bemoaning the fact that we were all eating like pigs. <laughs> and the, I don't think the cruises are even like that anymore, but they used to have a 24-hour buffet, and you could get anything you wanted, anytime you wanted it, as much as you wanted it. You know, if you wanted to eat 10 lobsters, you could have 10 lobsters. And uh, I was complaining to her and saying, oh, boy, you know, we're going to be in big trouble here. And she said, oh, I don't worry about it. And I said, why not? And she said, because I gain weight and I just go home and lose it. And I had never heard anybody say that before. You know, I I never heard anybody say, oh, I can just go home and lose this weight. So I said, how do you do it? And she was doing Atkins. And 
you know, I had never dieted. I'd never done low-fat diet, which was probably an advantage. You know, I, some people reset their metabolism over and over when they do low-fat. Um, and I had never heard of Atkins. I had no idea about how it works or anything. But I sat with beside her. I made sure I was beside her every night at dinner. And I asked her to, to coach me. I said, you know, can I eat this? Can I eat that? What do I do here? <laughs> what do I do there? And she, she just led me through it. So when I got back home, I bought a couple of books. I bought uh, Dr. Uh, uh, AIDS, the two, you know, two doctors AIDS book, Protein Power, and I bought an, an Atkins. And then I think I bought Johnny Bowden's book, a few of them, and read up on it so I knew more about it. And uh, my husband at the time, he had retired, but he got talked back into starting a, a, a foundation at USC in Southern California. So although we had moved to Washington, he was working down there and just commuting back home every couple of weeks for a while to help them get this foundation started. And I, so between times when he was gone, so he was literally only gone about two weeks, I thought, I'm going to do this and then show him that it works. So, um, and I lost a pound a day. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, within a, within a few weeks, I was done. I had lost 30 pounds, and, and I didn't need to lose anymore. So the, the next time he came home, I said, you know, look at me. <laughs> Do you want to try this? And he said, uh, I'll eat whatever you give me. So that was my, my signal that I could do this. So I started trying to cook. You know, when I was doing it, I did it with boiled eggs and sugar-free jello, basically, because it was just me. <laughs> Uh, but when when he came home, I knew that the food was going to have to be good if he was going to stick to it. And then it worked for him, and he did event. It took him longer. He didn't lose a pound a day like I did. But uh, it took him longer, but he eventually lost 50 pounds and got a lot of his uh, health markers uh, better under control. And uh, and I thought, you know, so we're going to be doing... what um, markers were you looking at with your husband? What sort of what? With the health markers. Oh, well, his so, cholesterol and, and uh, you know, all the things they check, you know, blood pressure, yeah. all that. Uh, and the, he was reacting to the medications. You know, they would keep raising the medications, and then he would feel worse. and So it was kind of a downward spiral. And there's, a, there's more to this story, which we'll get to later. But um, anyway, I thought, you know, if we're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives, and I understood why. You know, after reading these books, I understood that, that it's not just about vanity and weight loss. It's about longevity. It's about your quality of life. It's about not glycating your proteins. Uh, you know, there's more important things than just the aesthetic issues. And I thought, okay, we're going to be doing this forever. And, uh, you know, good food was important to me. And I, so I started trying to remake all my favorite foods and to make low-carb versions of them. Now, this was the, a good while ago. You know, there, there weren't very many books out there. And there, there was not, you couldn't go online and order a bunch of, of uh, ingredients. In fact, I didn't even have a computer of my own at that time. <laughs> um, if, I need, you know, if I needed something done on the computer, I had to get my husband to do it for me. So I just started uh, taking the, my recipes, and when I would have a good one, I would write it down, and then I started logging it into the computer after I got a computer. And after a while, I thought, you know, this is a book. 
I've got all these recipes that maybe other people would enjoy using. So I published the first book. Uh, it took me, I think I spent, I spent a lot of time working on it. I, it, it finally came out in 2007. But that was the, the recipes that I had accumulated up to then. And which book you know, we was now that, have a uh, lot Judy? more ingredients. We've learned a lot more. The research has gone on so that you know you keep getting better, you keep adding things, you keep uh, trying to improve things. But but uh, basically it worked, you know, and we've been able to stick to it, and we never, ever, ever feel deprived. In fact, it's the most luxurious diet in the world. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to give up butter. You don't have to give up... Uh, uh, bacon, <laughs> all the good things in life are allowed. So it's a win-win. Now, which which book was your first book? Was that the Carb Wars? Carb Wars: Sugar is the New Fat, and it was self-published. I didn't, uh, I didn't ever set out as using it as a way to make money, and I've never, you know, I don't take ads on my blog. I don't make any money, and my husband has said that he really didn't want me to because uh, what little bit I could make would just make it harder for him when he had to do the taxes. <laughs> so, you know, this is just uh, trying to, to earn my time on earth, I guess, by doing something useful and something that I think might help people. And when you self-publish, you know, you never really get your money back. Anyway. So do you feel that through the change that you have made, you've changed your husband's life? And you've oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we, uh, a recent crisis, which we'll get to later, uh, reaffirmed that it, that it saved his life again. Now, Judy, to, and it's been seventeen years. Yeah, let's back up, back up uh, to where you started with uh, the low carb. Where your, which you, I think you mentioned to me before, your husband's markers were okay, but they had put him on a statin drug. Uh, initially, no, they gave him the statin for the cholesterol. They were they were trying to lower his cholesterol. They were trying to lower his blood pressure, and they uh, never really talked to him about his weight. You know, he clearly had metabolic syndrome. You know, where you one of the markers is that your waist is bigger than your hips, and um, and that never uh, as long as he and he he did continue to take the statin. And I, you know, nobody wants to listen to their wife, I guess. You know, and he's. I think a lot of people think uh, that they're hedging their bet. You know, he knew the diet worked, and he was committed to it, and he stuck to it for 17 years, but he never quit taking the drugs that the doctor told him to take. Oh, my God. I, so so he was, yeah, he was taking I, a statin all along. Has he stopped now? Uh <laughs> He stopped the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, this is good. I didn't know that he, he I, I had thought he'd gotten off the statins when he got. No, he, he'd gotten it down to a very, very low dose, and he was doing well. You know, he had no problems, and, and I, I, every time a study would come out, I would uh, quote it to him about the bad things that, that these drugs were doing, uh, and I guess I, I probably overdid it and to the point that I was nagging, and I, he just turned me off because... And he did the diet, which is probably what what kept him as good as he was. But but the the statins do not prevent the plaque from building up in your arteries. They they may slow it down some, but they don't prevent it. Yeah, and but they the, are linked to metabolic syndrome. They're linked to a whole whole bunch of things. And I think probably yeah. over the course of this conversation and talking more about you know what happened recently, it's probably a in my in my biased mind and I will say it's a biased mind 
is probably one of the factors that triggered whatever. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree because I don't, well, uh, we'll get to that in a bit, but I, I don't think he would have had the problem at all if it hadn't been for that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, I think one of the things we need to, to cover again is, is the fact that, you know, in your cookbooks, you kind of, let's talk about how easy you've made these, these recipes so they can be done quickly, conveniently with things you get out of a regular supermarket, um, you know, th- and fortunately, and, and, there's a lot more in the regular supermarket now than there used to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, people would say, oh, you love to cook. And I say, no, I don't like to cook at all. I like to eat. <laughs> so the cooking is the work part. The eating is the fun part. So that, you know, the more you can, the easier you can make it, the better. And I, I did, uh, I did an article. I don't think I ever posted it on my blog, but I did a, an article about, uh, convenience foods you know the way you can have a meal that looks like a lavish meal with a a large assortment of things but some of them can just be things that you get off your pantry shelf and open and there's your wonderful side dish or something I have one of my favorite side dishes is uh, uh, I have have quite a few you know mashed potato substitutes and uh, sweet potato substitutes and uh, uh, french fry substitutes and all those things but one of the easiest ones is done just with a package of, of uh, pureed pumpkins. And if you take a, a, and I like to use the little Petra packs. I've kind of gotten scared a bit of the cans, even the ones that say they're BPA-free, which most of them don't. But even the ones that do, they say they just replace it with something that's almost as bad. But if you have a can of pumpkin, you've got a wonderful side dish just sitting on your shelf. And you just put it in a saucepan, put in some butter, put in some coconut milk, and uh, and then beat an egg until it's nice and smooth, and stir that in until it gets. And then, and then you cook it until it becomes uh, the consistency of of a, of a starchy side dish. When it isn't, you only put a little sweetener in, and uh, and it's wonderful. A little cinnamon, <laughs> so it tastes like mashed sweet potatoes. Another favorite one is uh, 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 French fry substitute, which people always want French fries, you know, and I, I try not to fry a lot, and when I do fry, I make sure I'm using really good quality high heat oil that's not going to go rancid, and uh, you don't overcook things, you don't overheat them, but, you know, occasionally I think it makes it makes your diet much more interesting to have those, and one of my favorites is um, uh, artichoke hearts, and if you buy the artichoke hearts, they can be canned ones or they can be in it from a jar. And you cut them in little slivers, like wet, cut them in wedges, like little slivers. And then you fry them quickly in hot oil. And the, the, the leaves of the artichoke, the, I guess it's petals, I think it's technically it's a thistle or a flower. But the petals will spread out so that each one becomes like a crispy little chip. And it's actually better than French fries because it's, it's got all these little crispy layers in it. And uh, the wow. problem with those is you can never make enough. <laughs> well, and, and what we find is, is like with athletes, you know, there's a greater window of carbohydrate tolerance. And, you know, the occasional French fries, if you make them in a heat-stable, animal-based fat, isn't the end right. of the world on occasion. But 
you know, your the French fries you get out of the fryer of most uh, restaurants, you know, using stabilized oh, vegetable yeah, oils is just and you know, just, it's horrifying to know what they're frying things in. I get. I'm on some of these. I, I'm a member of the uh, International Association of Culinary Professionals, so I get ads from them and you know from people that that use their mailing lists and things. And at nearly every newsletter I get for them has an ad for a frying oil for restaurants, and it's uh, I, they never say what it is. I think they that's very careful, <laughs> very careful that they don't say what it is. Uh, but it just it's like they claim it never goes bad. Like you can use it all day, every day at high heat for three weeks and it won't break down. Well, you know, what are the chances that there's anything good left in that? And you know, if you've read Nina Chechel's book, The Big Fat Surprise, you know that it that these unstable oils react with everything they come in contact with and they turn into God knows what. You know, you don't know what they are. There are all these toxic substances and trans fats and all these nasty things in there. And it's looking more and more to me like, uh, uh, although we've been placing the blame mainly on sugar, that I think maybe a, as big a factor and maybe a bigger one is the awful fats that have replaced the natural fats in the American diet and in worldwide too. And we're exposed to it much, much more because we eat out so much. And that's where you get the, you know, the, the uh, all kinds of, of uh, additives and the bad fats and all the stuff that's, uh, that's just uh, destroying us. You know, it's, it's causing all these epidemics. And it's not just, you know, it's the addition of the toxic things and the chemicals, but it's also the absence of the good things like the omega-3s and the coconut oil and the things that your brain needs. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about your cookbooks and some of the really cool things that you swap out for the high carbon alternatives. Okay. Well, in, you know, the important things are you need something to replace gluten. You need some way to make things thick. You know, gluten, yeah. gluten is what makes bread rise because it's stretchy. And it and when you get the, the leavening, that makes bubbles, but it's the gluten that causes it to stretch like a balloon uh, and hold the bubbles in, and that's why you get the light textured bread. So one of the hard things with low carb has been to get something that will rise like bread. And I've I've been working on that. There's, there's maybe more of this on my blog than there are in the... Uh, in the early books, I know one of the things that Atkins used is that they would put carbonated water in with with his. Uh, Atkins had a uh, a flour mix, and they would put carbonated water in it as a way to get it to rise. But it didn't work very well because you know so much of it mm -hmm. escaped. And uh, now we, you know, a lot of us use um, guar gum or xanthan gum, which uh, are things that you can you can buy. You know, they a lot of people say, oh, that's not not natural, but most of it is natural. It's just that it's, it's a name you're not familiar with, that's all. And I've been playing around lately with tapioca, which is uh, it's not very low carb, but it will rise without leavening, and that's a great advantage. And sometimes it doesn't take very much, and it gives you this nice stretchy quality that I don't know any other flower that does that. And it is a good uh, 
pure, non-toxic. There's nothing bad about tapioca. It's not a grain. Uh, it's just that it, you know it's good for you. It's just it's just high in carbs. But but I'm trying to incorporate some of that into some of my recipes enough to get some of the rise and some of that that good gooey texture <laughs> without yeah. overdoing the carbs. Yeah, and that would really suit a lot of our athletes too because um, OFM isn't about purely low carb. It's actually um, incorporating carbs strategically throughout the day. So, right. um, and, uh, yeah, yeah a, some of those recipes would be A lot good. of people now are doing uh, uh, intermittent fasting where you're, you can mm -hmm. be more liberal when you're, when you're not fasting because you make up for it when you are fasting. So that's, that's something that's, that's fairly new. That's making a big difference for a lot of people. That, and you know, once you're fat adapted, you can fast very easily without getting uh, without getting terribly hungry. Yes, it doesn't affect you as much as long as you don't, you know, overdo it too right. much when you go um, back onto it. So then, uh, see the 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 first book was, um, you know, I. I think I came up with some some really innovative ideas, ones that I hadn't seen anywhere else, and, uh, and they've kind of caught on, and a lot of people use them now, which is good. But there were there there wasn't a lot to play with at that time, and the the biggest yep. difference has been the huge amount of sweeteners that we now can choose from, and some of them are actually good for you. You know, they're uh, they're probiotic, they're uh, indigestible fiber that we can't digest the fibers but the bacteria in our guts can digest it and then I the way I've heard it explained is it's like uh, it's like a cow eating grass you know that the cow we can't digest grass the cow can't digest grass only the bacteria can digest grass but the cow has these fermentation tanks so that they're full of all these bacteria which turn the fiber into fat <laughs> that we can eat. <laughs> mm. So that's yeah. that's and and yet you can use that as a sweetener if you have a something that is a you know a plant fiber, but it's but it's not it doesn't get broken down by human digestive enzymes. And some of them taste really really good. Some of them have some uh, unpleasant side effects. So you have to know what you can tolerate, and you know you have to know. That, that if you mix them, if you use a little of this and a little of that, it tastes better and, and you don't get a bad reaction and all those things too. So, it's, um, so that would that be like um, stevia and um, those sorts of products? No, stevia and uh, sucralose, which has been, you know, it's been taking a beating lately. I'm not sure it deserves it, but anyway, a lot of people are moving away from it because it's artificial. Mm. But uh, monk fruit, stevia, sucralose, are they don't count at all they have no bulk no fiber they don't do anything except taste sweet but in order to have a uh, to make a cake for example you have to have some of the mechanical properties of sweetener you know sugar is more than just a sweet taste it's a texture and it's a granular texture that helps you beat air into batters and things like that and it provides the bulk of things and that's what we have now that we didn't have uh, back in 2000 when I first started doing this. I could make things sweet, but I had to find something else to actually make it out of because the sugar couldn't 
couldn't be a big part of this recipe because the, these uh, no-calorie uh, sweeteners just they had no bulk. And even the even the uh, Splenda that was granular that measured like sugar, as soon as it got wet, that went away. So it 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 didn't have any bulk either. It was just nothing. Once you had finished measuring it, there was no advantage to having the bulk. Uh, but the newer ones, oligofructose, uh, you know, these are they're plant fibers made from roots, and uh, oligofructose is from uh, usually from chicory root. Uh, there's you know there's other sources for it, but it tastes really good, and it's it's an indigestible fiber, um, and a lot of them like they they take the monk fruit or the the stevia or whatever you know the, the high intensity ones. I call them bulk sweeteners with bulk and sweeteners high intensity sweeteners just to differentiate. But the the ones that are high intensity sweeteners now are often bulked with erythritol, and erythritol is a sugar alcohol, which uh, most sugar al alcohols cause some digestive in, uh, distress. You know they may give you cramps or or bloating or or something that's not good, not pleasant, uh, but erythritol doesn't. It seems to just go through pretty much without without having any effect, and uh, and it is just fiber. So most of them are bulked with with erythritol, but if you use too much erythritol, uh, it can have an unpleasant taste, and it it has sort of a cooling effect in your mouth, which is odd. It just doesn't taste right. Uh, and it can cause it can cause things like cakes to become grainy after they sit for a while. So it, it's a balancing act. You use enough erythritol to give you the texture you need and some of the bulk, but then you add something else to be the sweetener that doesn't have that effect, and that keeps it from uh, from from being unpleasant. But the oligofructose doesn't isn't that way. It's not a sugar alcohol. Uh, it's a it's a long chain. Let's see if I get this right. Um, it's a long chain fructose molecule, and there are long chain dextrose molecules too. Those are two different kinds of sugars, and because it's long, your body doesn't break it down before it's passed through. You know, you, it gets out of the small intestine where you're actually digesting things before it gets to the end of all the chain to break it all down. So most of it is not digested until it gets down further. So that so that works too. Uh, the, the problem with some of them is that they tend to be expensive. Uh, one of the one of the ones that's become really popular among the bloggers and the low carb food writers is uh, is called Swerve, which is a combination of erythritol and stevia. And it tastes good and it works well, but for for me, and I think for some other people, and I don't want to ruin their business or anything, because if you can if you can tolerate it, I certainly do recommend it. But to me, it just tastes like erythritol. I don't taste any difference, and that's that's an individual sort of thing. So so I do you know I, I often give an I try to give options in my recipes. You know, you can use this one or you mm -hmm. can use this one, and you can use them in bulk, and it'll work this way. And then I have a little directory somewhere that tells you uh, what your choices are. Because I'm not sure that we've actually got some of those in Australia yet. We are a little bit slower than you guys. Yeah, that's, I, I have heard that. that you're, yeah, right, that you have to order things from other places. But these days you can mm. do that. It probably just costs more. But, uh, 
yeah. Amazon is changing the world. <laughs> yes. You can get almost anything anywhere. Uh, and I've been playing around with a lot of them. Um, there's one made by a company called LC Sweet that is a combination of nearly all the different sweeteners put together. So it's got a little bit of all of them, and it comes out, it kind of uh, neutralizes, you know, they kind of counteract each other, you know, the advantages of one or, or compensate for the disadvantages of another one. And yet they, they measure like sugar. So the main, and you know, the reason sugar is so cheap is because we pay for it with our taxes. Mm -hmm. People don't, you know, they think paying $20 for a pound of almond fructose is outrageous, but you know, it's only because it's not subsidized that it's expensive. But if these things become more popular, hopefully the prices will go down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you yeah, can do just just about anything. all demand, isn't it? Yeah, and and you know, if you've got a good sugar substitute, you can take almost any recipe and swap out the sweetener and and it's easy to do because it all, you know, it, it measures the same or you have a uh, a ratio that tells you X amount of this is equal to X amount of sugar. Uh, and then you're left with just the, the flour problem, which is a big one, but we've also got some really good solutions for that. Like I was talking about tapioca, which can, can uh, there's there's a, a recipe that's been making the rounds for a wonderful pastry, and I've been playing around with that a little bit. I haven't posted anything about it yet, but it it's a pastry that's made with um, uh, cheese, and the the stretchy part of the of the that you usually would get from the gluten, I think, is actually coming from the cheese. And there is a a classic Brazilian bread. I won't attempt to say the name of it, but it's a uh, in uh, Brazil and and some of the South American countries where they where they have a lot of beef and they you know naturally eat a, a, a good diet like that, but they didn't have they didn't have much wheat, and their bread was made with um, tapioca flour and eggs and cheese, and it's wonderful. If you go to one of these uh, uh, Fufu de Chao, you know the Brazilian steakhouse res uh, restaurants, that's that's what they'll give you, and they puff up by themselves. It's just like three ingredients, and it puffs up and makes wonderful little bread <laughs> bread balls. So I'm getting off the subject here a little bit. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm always looking for for new ideas and for ways that I can take something that isn't low carb and do some substitutes on it. And and you know, we we share so much, and it's so great to have all these resources online because you you know, I've taken things from the paleo people, I've taken things from the primal people, I've taken things, I've even taken recipes from vegans because. Uh, I've had a problem with allergies lately, and a lot of people do. It's become an epidemic mm. of that, too. And if you can't have eggs and you can't have dairy, then, you know, you can start with a vegan recipe and, and make it low-carb. So there's, there's just all kinds of resources. But it, it takes a long time to test recipes, so it's nice to have somebody doing the work for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's you probably nice that you can try you them out. You waste a lot of expensive products if you're just testing them, which, which I do. Yes. I waste a lot of expensive products, but sometimes I get something that that really works and uh, you know works on the first try, and that's a that's a real uh, a real thrill. <laughs> 
So would you throw much in the bin? Would I what? Would you throw much in the bin? Uh, seldom. We usually eat it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My husband is very accommodating. Oh, that's so, good. Uh, we, yeah. we eat whatever turns out unless it's really, really awful. But, uh, but sometimes they're not worth uh, sharing with anybody. So I eat those. <laughs> and don't tell you about my failures. And then, you know, to publish online, you also have to have a good picture. And that's the stumbling block, too, because uh, especially where yeah. I live here in the Northwest, we, in, especially in the winter, we don't get much daylight. And I'm usually, you know, cooking dinner in the evening. And by the time the food is ready, it's too dark to photograph it. So I had a lot of a lot of good recipes that have never that I've never used because I haven't been able to get a good picture of them yet. Oh, you'll have to get a good camera and um, and flash. Well, I've so got that... I've got sort of an idiot-proof camera. Uh, yeah. So you just kind of uh, take the picture, and then uh, and my husband has a program on his computer where he can adjust the light and all that, and and they come out okay usually. And I'm an artist, you know, my background and most of my career I was spent as an artist. So, you know, I know what I want them to look like. I just don't have the technical ability to be a good photographer. And I, I need to take some classes or something, I guess, and, and buy the yeah, whatever yeah. is necessary. But so far I haven't had any complaints, so I guess I'm doing okay. Um, another thing about my, uh, my second book, which um, I originally wrote that, under contract to the American Diabetes Association, which was, you know, I was just flabbergasted that they contacted me and asked me to write a low-carb book for them. And yes. I, you know, I was astonished. And this was, uh, what, 2000, the book came out in 2012, so it was like three years before that. And I had... So uh, do you I think had, that they're changing their mindset now to... Um, I don't know how more. they can avoid it, but they... You know, yeah. I thought they were going to change their their guidelines because, you know, why else would they want a low-carb book? So I spent two years writing this book, and I sent them every chapter as I wrote it for approval. I never got any complaints about what I was sending them. And after the book was finished and I turned in the final uh, file, uh, I didn't hear from them for a while, and I was nervous about it. You know, I, I just... Mm. I kept waiting to see some movement in their guidelines, and I didn't see it. And then finally I got a, a, a conference call from the director of book publishing and the editor and some one of the other people from the ADA. And uh, they said, you're going to have to make some changes. Uh, and I, I, there's a blog post on my blog about it. If you look up, if you go to my blog and look, put in so close, there's a story about what happened, that they wanted me to increase the carbs in every recipe and to take out the, the fat and, you know, just totally destroy it. And I said, I've given you a book that will cure type 2 diabetes. And yeah. the, director, the director said, we don't disagree with you, but until our board changes our guidelines, we're stuck with this, and this is how we have to do it. So uh, I just, I walked away from it. You know, I, they had told me that any book that they published that had the ADA symbol on it would sell at least 50,000 copies. And, you know, that was hard. <laughs> uh, 
it was hard to walk oh, away with that, but there was. was no way that I was going to uh, to help them when I knew they were hurting people, killing people. Yeah. And, Good uh, on you for standing up to them, too. Yeah, so I published it myself, and I haven't come anywhere near 50,000 sales, but at least I, ethically I feel good about it. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm sure that we'll get more up there. Yeah, and... We'll and have to get some across to Australia, Judy, and sell some um, on our website over here. Oh, well, that would be great. That would yeah. Be great. The first book is actually out of print now. I think uh, Peter has some of the last ones, unless we decide to redo it. But so the second still... one's better, you think? Uh, well, I, you know, I learned a lot in between. Uh, there's some of my yeah. favorite recipes are in the first one. Uh, okay. And it, it's my story, you know, so that's uh, like your first child, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. I, I've been working on another one, but it's been been hard life has been getting in the way <laughs> <laughs> so um how did you come to develop the books and the blog and those sorts of things so what made you go in that direction uh well i i actually started the blog just to publicize the books uh, the first book and i started it so it's been it's been up i've had been blogging since 2007 and I really didn't know what I was doing, so I just, you know, learned by doing. And uh, I still am not technically very good with anything on the computer, but uh, I've learned a lot. And I just hired a new guy to kind of help me stiff my site up a little bit to uh, make it a little more user-friendly and see if he can help me with the uh, uh, social media, you know, to get some, uh, to get some more attention for it. Because I work very hard, you know, I work like this is a full-time job. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's all, I'm doing it because I want to, you know, not because I have to. So what do you do in your full-time job? I, I, I was an artist for all my life. Uh, okay. But, uh, you know, you don't make any money as an artist either, so I didn't really lose anything no. there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but you're working you, you in your passion, it. so it's great. Yeah, and, uh, and my husband is is supposed to be retired. He's actually working. Uh, he could work all he wanted to. He's very much in demand. He's you know he's very talented at what he does, and he always has people wanting him to do more than he actually wants to do. So, so he has never you know he's he retired from his major job, but he never really retired. And uh, mm. we you know at the time he did retire, he took inventory and thought that he could afford to retire and it turned out that uh, he's, his income's actually gone up instead of down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, been good. that's been good. So tell us a bit about his journey. You touched uh, on okay. a little bit before. Yes, right. Well, he, um, like I said, you know, I, I was, I'm afraid, a bit of a nag. I was trying very hard not to, not to be. But you just, you know, I, I finally, at one point, I realized that the more I talked, the less he listened to me. So I just started kind of keeping my mouth shut and hoping for the best. And then uh, one night, it was October 28th, you know, a day that will live in infamy in my mind, uh, at shortly after midnight, he got up complaining of chest pain. 
and we knew, uh, you know, we knew the typical symptoms for a heart attack, and he didn't have those. He just had uh, a pain, a high pain in his chest. And after a while, he thought uh, he started feeling a little better, so he decided to come back to bed. And he laid down, and uh, the last thing he said to me was that he was freezing. So I moved over and kind of snuggled up to him, try to help him get warm. And I don't know if I went to sleep or not, but I heard a strange noise. You know, he normally snored a little bit when he slept, and that's, you know, I guess I'd gotten used to that. Uh, but I heard this strange sort of a gurgle and then nothing. And I, somehow I recognized that that was wrong, that something was wrong. And I turned on the light, and he was not breathing, and his heart was not beating, and his eyes were open rolled back in his head. It was the most horrifying experience I've ever had. And uh, so I, I called 911. I'd never done CPR before. And uh, the lady on the phone told me, she said, first thing, go unlock the door. And I did. And she said, now get him on the floor. And I couldn't, I couldn't lift him, so I just pulled him off and let him fall on the floor. You know, I tried to kind of break his fall. And she told me how to do CPR. And I got no response. I was, I thought it was all over, you know. And I, I said, you know, please, 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 tell him to hurry. I'm losing him. And uh, I finally, I, I did get three short air intakes, like, <gasps> like that. And that was the only sign of life at all. And it took them. The the crew from the closest fire station was out on call, so that we had to wait for the crew from a further away station to come. So it seemed like an eternity, uh, but I, I kept doing it, and the the, uh, uh, the woman on the phone was having me count the compressions to make sure I got the timing right. And um, so it was probably about 10 minutes, it seemed like forever, uh, when the paramedics came, and they pulled me up and, and took over the CPR, and they worked on him for at least an hour, maybe two hours, and they couldn't get his heart to start again. And they, the, um, the team leader told me that they had, uh, they had maxed out how many EpiPens and paddle shocks that they could give him, and that there was no point in continuing. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, they're, they're basically giving up at that point. And I said, well, what are his chances? And he said, uh, it looks bad. It looks really, really bad. He said, I don't want to give you false hope. But they finally got him um, stable enough. They kept giving him manual CPR the whole time. And another team of paramedics showed up. So we had you know, all these um, flashing lights uh, and you know, emergency vehicles lined up around the driveway. And they got him in the ambulance and took him to the um, emergency room. And I called my daughter, and, and we followed the, the ambulance. And I, you know, I, I, had, I really didn't expect him to make it long enough to get into the emergency room. And uh, I called my son and told him what had happened, and he booked a flight to come up the next morning. But when we got to the hospital, and I talked to the first cardiologist, and she said, call your son back and tell him he has to get here today. Tomorrow's going to be too late. So, um, you know, that's how bad it was. And they told me mm -hmm. later. They didn't tell me then because, you know, they could see how much distress we were in, I was sure. But they told me later that 99% uh, 
of the patients that come into the hospital the way he did never wake up. And that 1% that does survive includes all the ones who are in wheelchairs or have brain damage or all the other things that usually result from this kind of thing. So they did all these tests on him for the first couple of days, and, uh, uh, and he was unconscious. We had no idea if, if he was still in there or not, you know, if he had any brain uh, activity at all. And they found nothing. They, he had no clogs, no blockages, you know, and I thank, I thank God for the diet for that because I know that's, you know that's why he survived this, I think. And uh, they scanned his brain, and he had no brain swelling or bleeding, which I guess is typical with heart attacks. And um, so they, they, you know, they did a lot of tests that, that were not, uh, you know, they were invasive tests, but they weren't useful because he didn't have that kind of heart attack. And finally, they determined that the only uh, cause that they could find for it was low potassium. And when I would ask them, uh, what causes low potassium? And the only answer I ever got, it was consistent from everybody who answered me. And, and I talked to the pharmacist, um, the hospital pharmacist, and I talked to, to all of the cardiologists. And the only thing they ever told me was that they pointed to his blood pressure medication. And they, every one of them, when I would show them what he had been taking, they would point to it and say, it's that one. And it was uh, hydrochlorothiazide. And I have, um, I have an article about this on my blog, too. Uh, if, you look, if you go to my blog and look up the worst day of my life, <laughs> you'll find the whole story and, the, and information about this blood pressure medication, which is the most frequently prescribed blood pressure medication in the country. And yet, I, there was an article by uh, a doctor who contacted me later because I quoted him in this, uh, who said that it, it, the reason it was the most commonly prescribed was because the insurance chose that one to pay for. And it was not, it, in, in, one, uh, in a couple of tests on it, it didn't perform any better than the placebo and that the outcomes were worse when there were others that were similar, but they didn't lower potassium the way that one did, uh, that was was not prescribed much at all. So I've been, uh, you know, kind of on my uh, uh, soapbox telling people, look out, <laughs> look out for this drug. This is a danger. Yeah. And I'm sure there are others out there too. And I, I, you know, like one, I was, I had some figures that I wrote down that I think it was one out of a hundred of people over 65 will go to the emergency room every year because of a drug. And these are wow. drugs that, these were preventative drugs. You know, they were, it was not a drug they gave him. Uh, I mean, all it was for was to prevent heart attacks. And yet, it seems clear to me that that was what caused it. So that was an eye-opener. And they, the very first, if you look up the drug, the very first side effect they list is low potassium and heart attacks. And they say uh, that patients are supposed to be told to take potassium supplements and to monitor their potassium levels, but he was never told that because he's always very conscientious about doing what he's told. So that And was, was he told that? No. It, no. The, the doctor checked his potassium once a year at his annual checkup. But he had been yeah. taking it for a while, you know, so it, it wasn't anything that... Uh, that he thought to check. So we've, we've learned. <laughs>
Uh, but anyway, the, the rest of the story is that after a couple of days, um, he, was, he survived. Uh, and you know, we were just glad that he was alive because we still had hope, but they still were, were not giving us a very encouraging prognosis. And they, um, so they, th they thought they would try to get him off uh, some of the life support. Oh, the, the other thing that, um, that I, I, you know, I think his brain was already healthier because of the good fats he'd been getting and because of the low-carb diet. So he probably lasted longer than he would have if he had a brain that was running on glucose. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine that you would last more than a couple of minutes. You know, a few minutes maybe if your if your brain was running on glucose, but when you're fat adapted, you're just much more flexible. And uh, they were giving him in the they. My son counted these drip bags. You know, I I estimated that there were about 40 drip bags of things they had going into him while he was in the intensive care unit. And uh, I asked the nurse what was in the, in, all, in all those bags, and she says, Well, I don't know what's in most of them. But I do know that this one is glucose, and this one is insulin, and this one is a statin. <laughs> wow. And then they also had a food feeding tube into his stomach. And I said, I want to see what's in the mixture in the feeding tube. So the dietician came up to talk to me, and the main ingredient was corn sugar. And I, after reading the label, I said, this is just junk food. It's processed junk. <laughs> And she said, I know, she said, but this is all I'm allowed to use. She said, they have two formulas, and this one is the only one that I'm allowed to use for heart patients because it's low fat and high carb. Oh and my I just went ballistic. And she said, but it has some fat in it, but the fat was soy, soy oil. Oh. And she said, there is another formula. So it just gets formula. from worse to really worse. Yeah. So they, she said there is another formula that, uh, that we use for some patients, you know, it was like for the diabetic patients, and it had, it, the main ingredient was still corn sugar, uh, but it had some uh, MCT oil in it. And I said, can you switch into the MCT oil formula at least, you know? And, and, uh, and I said, can I, you know, I said, this stuff, looks like processed junk to me. I said, can, can you give him some good MCT oil? And uh, the first cardiologist that I asked, they said, you know, you'd have to get permission. So the first cardiologist that I asked, I said, could we add some good MCT oil to this? And she said, oh, I'm a cardiologist. I would never do that. <laughs> and one of the nurses says, you do know he's in the cardiac unit, right? <laughs> Like, what kind of an idiot are you to think we would give uh, saturated fat to a heart patient? But uh, so I, I gave up on the, the first cardiologist and just moved on to the next one. And, you know, there were the shifts changed regularly. So every eight to ten hours or so, there would be a new cardiologist on duty. And I would uh, corner them. And I finally learned not to sound quite so hysterical. <laughs> yeah. That, I, that they would listen to me better if I didn't sound like a maniac. So I, I finally did get two of them who listened to me, and um, one of them switched him to the other formula, the one that had the little bit of MCT oil in it, and they added CoQ10, and they took away the statin. And then the, the next one, another one, I made my pitch about better MCT oil. And I, you know, I make butter coffee. I use um, 
the Bulletproof uh, Brain Octane Oil, which you can tell by the name that it's good for your brain, right? And um, so I said, you know, could we give him a better quality? Because the, the one on the, on the label with the um, formula didn't even say what kind it was. You know, it could have been 12, it could have been 4 or 6 or 8 or 12 chain, medium chain triglycerides, which some of them are not very, not particularly helpful. And uh, I said, could, could you give him a good uh, MCT oil, an eight-chain MCT oil? And he said, well, he said, yes. He said, uh, that's, that's good stuff. Now, he was a lipids specialist, so I had a leg up with him, and he knew what I was talking about. You know, and I was telling him, you know, your brain runs better on ketones. It can heal better if you have MCT oil, you know, if you can, if you can feed it a fat instead of sugar so it can run on ketones. And he said, yeah, we're hearing a lot about that lately. So, so I, I knew then that I'd found the right guy to talk to. Uh, and he said, but if we wanted to add that in, he said, first I'd have to find out where to get it, and I'd have to have it logged into the pharmacy, and they'd have to approve it and then send it up to the room. And I said, it's in my purse. And I took out my bottle that I had with me because I was hoping to get somebody to put it in there. And he sent it down to the pharmacy, and they got it approved and stamped and sent back up to the room. And uh, luckily, that was the day they were trying to get him off the sedatives and see if he could wake up. And then, you know, that was going to be the big aha moment where we found out whether his brain was still functioning or not. Yeah. And they tried to they tried to get him off once, uh, and it didn't work. And they had to put him back on the, all the life support system. So they tried again like five or six hours later, and it worked, and they got him off. And in the meantime, they had started putting the MCT oil in his feed tube. And, you know, I can't tell you that that wasn't coincidence, but I don't believe it was. I think that made a big difference. And then um, he, uh, he, he was conscious, but he couldn't talk, and he had all this stuff going down his throat and everything. And uh, the, the nurse asked him, you know, the things they generally have people, you've seen this on TV, you know, where they say, squeeze my hand or wiggle your toe. And he wiggled his toe and he squeezed the nurse's hand. And then the doctor said, uh, are you in pain? And he shook his head no. And that was the biggest relief. You know, we all started crying. <laughs> but, and then... Uh, the, by the next day, he was uh, he was talking a little bit and smiling at us, and he he knew who we were, and uh, but you know still we were still concerned and worried. And then um, the next day, um, they um, wait a minute, let me look over here. They 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 would ask him after he could talk. They would ask him the questions like you know, who's the president, and what year is it, and things like that. And uh, then at one point they asked him what, what year it was, and he said, it's the year the Cubs won the pennant. <laughs> 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 so, so that impressed the nurse, and she didn't ask him that anymore. And then uh, I also commented to my son, who was standing beside me, and, and I thought Dean was asleep at the time, but I said, uh, I wonder why all the nurses uh, here wear such squeaky shoes. And Dean said, they have antistatic souls because they work around oxygen. 
And I, at that point, I knew he was still there. <laughs> that was that was so typical of him, you know, to know all these uh, obscure little details about everything. So we were we were all uh, immensely relieved to know that he that he was there. And I kept telling him, uh, you know, I kept telling him, if you you know, please just come back. You know, even when he couldn't hear me, I was telling him, please just come back. We can fix this. <laughs> Uh, and it turned out we could. <laughs> so he was in uh, he was in intensive care for about six days, and he was in the hospital for a total of eleven days. But one of the other things, which was a real eye opener to me, was that how committed the hospital was to their to the lipid hypothesis. I mean, if you were in the cardiac unit, you got low salt, low fat, nothing but. And if the you know if your initial problem didn't kill you, the food would kill you. I mean, there literally there was nothing there for your brain to live on. And uh, the dietitian had told me when I talked to her that people were allowed to bring in food from home if they wanted to. So and I didn't you know I I was still wearing my pajama top for a couple of days that I was there because I hadn't been home. But when I when I yeah. did get a chance to go home, uh, I bought. Uh, some foie gras, and I thinned it down with bone broth, you know, so that I made a thin soup. Because they were, they were, they said we can't remove the feeding tube until he proves to us that he can get enough calories that we can take it out. And he was still getting all this sugar through the feeding tube, and I was anxious for them to get that out. Um, so I, I took that in, and I, I made a, a thin chocolate pudding that in order to give him that while he still had the feeding tube in, it had to just be thickened like a syrup. Even the water was thick. And then it was uh, no fat and no salt. So it was pretty horrible. <laughs> and uh, so I gave him, a, the nurse let me gave him a, give him a few bites of the stuff I brought from home, which was really good because I tasted it. And, but the next day I came back, and the nurse was different, and the next one wouldn't let me give it to him at all. I said, you know, she said, what have you got in the cooler there? And, and I told her, and she said, is it low fat and low salt? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, then you can't give it to him. So that was the end of that. So he had to, he had to eat their awful food uh, to prove to them that he could eat so they could take the, so they would take the tube out. And it was, mm. it was literally so bad. He almost couldn't swallow it. But he ate every last scrap of it because he wanted to get out of there. And, uh, and they, let him, uh, they let him go early because he was doing so well. And uh, they told him he could skip the three to five days that they usually send people for um, physical therapy before they go home, and he didn't need it. So, uh, you know, it, it, was, it really was like a miracle first night that he yeah. and we were sitting on the couch and watching television and I, we would just start laughing every little bit that this was so amazing that this that we were just sitting there like ordinary people <laughs> after such a, an ordeal yeah so it's, it's a happy ending and it's uh, I think it's, it's and it's so ready. nice that you can both share that story now too Yes, right, and and I put it on my, my blog, and it was hard to write. Uh, it was hard to write that yeah. story because it was so tra such a traumatic uh, episode. But I thought I need to tell people about this, 
and especially about the uh, about the blood pressure medication because you know you I don't want other people to go through this. So the the first time that we w he went in for a checkup, they had given him nine new prescriptions when he left the hospital, which has scared me to death, since it was you know one of the prescriptions that had almost killed him, and I think three or four of them were blood pressure medications, and and he he the the thing the lingering effects that he still has is he has a little bit of atrial flutter, and he has he still has high blood pressure. So they've given him all these uh, all these medications, and my goal now is to find ways to get him off this stuff so we can go back to just using the diet. And you know, I don't know enough to know how things interact with other things, so I'm I'm having to just kind of go on, uh, you know, crossing my fingers and blind hope and hoping that that what they're giving him is not not hurting him. But I I do we are looking it up, and I did find. Um, even a site where uh, there's instructions for how to cure atrial flutter by supplementing with magnesium. So we've been doing that, and uh, you know I, I don't do anything that they don't tell us that it's okay to do. But if it was okay to give him magnesium, then I figured it was okay to give him the good magnesium. Yes. So he's gonna he's due to go in in about two weeks. Uh, he's oh, and he also got a pacemaker. Because it, uh, you know, the, uh, all of this did upset the heart rhythm, and getting it back into the right rhythm is the challenge when it's been so disrupted. So, uh, so that's kind of where we are now, and he's just uh, even from the even from the in, uh, from the ICU, uh, he was on the phone with some of his business partners conducting business <laughs> from the ICU, and the. Nurses said that he had the reputation around the hospital as Superman because they just you know, they never saw anything like that before. That's incredible, so, isn't it? Yeah, and you know the word is getting out, but man, these places are stuck in their old ways. You know, it's so hard. Yes. To change. When things have become set in stone and it's part of the protocol and nobody is allowed to break the rules then it's very, very hard for things to stay, stay updated. And they had, you know, they had wonderful emergency procedures, and they had this, uh, this process that was actually developed in Seattle uh, where they cool them down for 24 hours, uh, and that prevents some of the damage and gives them time to recover. And they did that, which was wonderful. So they have these space-age technology treatments and procedures to save people's lives, and then they kill them with the food. Mm. It makes no sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't make any sense at all. What a great story, though. And, you know, it's awesome that you can not only share it on your blog, but you can share it with so many others um, to save lives as well. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, we'll wrap I, it up now. Okay. Um, is there anything you want to tell us about your cookbooks or um, any other tips or bits before we finish up? Well, I did have uh, something that I wrote um, on. I, I wrote this at one point that I thought kind of summed things up. Uh, I said, when I talk to people about this way of eating, I tell them that it's not about vanity or even weight loss. It's, not, it's about how long you will live and how healthy you will be. 
they already know that they need to cut the carbs, but they don't think they can do it, and they won't. So they often they won't even try. And the best argument that I can make is this: you don't have to give up sweets and breads to give up sugar and starch. That's just making it harder than it needs to be. All you need is new recipes. <laughs> yes, how true is that? Sums it up nicely. Thank you so much, Judy. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to have me. you on board today. And I have, uh, I have more things that I would love to share with you at some point, too. Oh, we would love that. We'll get you back on a podcast um, in a few weeks' time. Great. Thanks, Judy. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. You were listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.